Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. I'm Erlon Woods. I'm Nigel Poor. We're the hosts and creators of Ear Hustle from PRX's Radiotopia. Ear Hustle is a show about life inside prison, but it's not your typical prison podcast. In this next season, we've got stories about the objects people keep inside their prison cells. About residents in a women's prison who say they want to stay there. And the most beautiful prison garden. Erlon, I will never forget it. Ear Hustle. Stories about life on the inside, told by those who live it. Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your podcasts. From WABE in Atlanta, this is Closer Look, and I'm Rose Scott. Coming up on today's program, it's the first and maybe only debate between Democratic Senator Raphael Warnock and Republican challenger Herschel Walker. It'll take place tonight in Savannah. Now, coming up in just a moment, our WABE politics team will check in live from Savannah. We'll find out where they are, what they're doing, and how much fun they're having. Also, the Jewish Foundation, part of the Jewish Federation of Atlanta, reportedly had a record year for distributing grants, nearly $55 million to local organizations. We'll find out what causes receive funding and why. Also, it's called Rising Against Asian Hate, One Day in March, and it will premiere on some PBS stations next Monday. Director TTU joins me ahead of Monday's premiere, and we'll talk about why he de- why they decided to do this documentary. Oh, that's coming up, but first this. Speaking of the elections, the Carter Center is sending nonpartisan observers to monitor the midterm elections in Fulton County. The center announced this move yesterday. Now, these observers will monitor voting and vote counting at the request of Georgia elections officials. Elections monitoring has been part of the Carter Center's international operations for decades. But the organization turned its focus to Atlanta after the 2020 presidential election when former President Donald Trump attempted to overturn the results. Now, this is a first for Atlanta Mayor Andre Dickens' administration. Tomorrow, the Atlanta Police Department will hold a gun buyback event. This will take place from 10 a.m. to 2 2 p.m. on the Civic Center parking lot. Now, 50 bucks for handguns and 100 for long guns. APD is stressing they will not run any vehicle tags or collect personal information from anyone who sells a firearm. And guns must be a real firearm, just so y'all know, as determined by designated experts. APD will accept firearms, maybe missing a small component, but will not accept a single firearm component like a barrel, a grip, or a bullet. Also, according to the city, y'all need to stay inside the vehicle. No walk-ups will be allowed. And it's been a little chilly the last few morning, mornings, you all know. Maybe some of you have turned on the heat to knock the chill off. My mother used to say that. But the higher heating costs set to hit many households around the country this winter won't impact Georgia Power customers who have electric heating, at least right away, as we hear from Molly Samuel. Most people in the country either use natural gas or electricity to heat their homes. And natural gas prices have increased. The U.S. Energy Information Administration is forecasting that between those higher prices and what's expected to be a colder winter this year than last, costs will be up. In almost all of Georgia, gas is deregulated, meaning prices are market-based. Prices for electricity from Georgia Power, though, are regulated by the State Public Service Commission. The commission is currently considering a rate hike requested by Georgia Power that would begin in January. But higher costs for coal and gas aren't built into it. They're part of a separate proceeding that would take place early next year. Molly Samuel, WABE News. Now, as mentioned, finally, U.S. Senator Raphael Warnock and Republican Herschel Walker will debate Up until now, there's been a lot of back and forth from everybody who's not associated with the campaign to people who are associated with the campaigns. And, of course, the PACs that support both with campaign ads attacking the other. This guy has no problem with aborting babies who are inconvenient. And the worst part, this guy claims to be a Christian. His name? Reverend Raphael Warnock. Listen as Warnock's ex-wife reports him to the police. But I've tried to keep the way that he acts under wraps for a long time. And today he crossed the line. And he's a great actor. Do you think you know Herschel Walker? Well, think again. Listen to what his ex-wife had to say about him. His eyes would become very evil. The guns and knives. I got into a few choking 
things with him. The first time he held the gun to my head, he held the gun to my temple and said, he's going to blow my brains out. So a lot of that stuff back and forth. Of course, Georgia is a key state as to which of the political parties will actually control the Senate. We will see. It took some time, but now the two will face off in Savannah. Time is 7 p.m. feel like I'm giving a sports report. Let's head to the field where our politics reporters Sam Greenglass and Raul Bally are among dozens of other media outlets. Guys, what's popping? As my hey, grandfather Rose. would say, where you be? Well, Rose, we are joining you from probably the best office you could possibly ask for on a beautiful day like this. We're in Monterey Square in the middle of historic savannah the square just lined with all these beautiful old houses pre-civil war there's spanish moss draping from these huge old trees above us and uh it is not just a tourist spot this morning we were here for a press conference with uh warnock's campaign team as everyone is kind of gearing up for this big night just like we are sound like you were doing an episode of this old house (laughs) that's the dream rose Now, we should note, while the debate is between Senator Raphael Warnock and Herschel Walker, the Libertarian candidate Chase Oliver was not invited, and he's not happy about it. Raul, take it from there. No, I actually uh, talked to him this morning. Um, He's actually driving down here to Savannah right now. Uh, He may have actually already gotten here. And and the reason he was left out, this debate is being uh, hosted by Nexstar Media. Uh, they own television stations across uh, the country, including in Augusta, here in Savannah, uh, and some other, not in Atlanta. And their decision was, they had a list of criteria, and, and one of the criteria was at least 10% uh, in a major poll. And in the end, Chase Oliver is not pulling 10% in, in most polls, you know, depending on the polls, 2, 3, sometimes 5, 6, 7%. And, and so he's frustrated, but he, as I mentioned, he's on his way here. Uh, he is going to protest outside of the debate venue. And I asked him what, what his message would be, and this is what he said. I think by not including all of the candidates, you do a disservice to all voters, but really in particular, you're doing a disservice to those undecided voters uh, who you know, really haven't made up their mind in this election. And polls are showing that's between 5 and 10% of the electorate. And that's a lot of Georgia voters that are, that are not getting to see all of the candidates at one time on the stage. And so he will be now I I want to mention one other thing. There is a second U.S. Senate debate this coming Sunday at Mm -hmm. the Atlanta Press Club, and he will be in that one along with Senator Warnock. Up to this point, we still have not heard that Herschel Walker has either rejected that debate or accepted that debate. So that's a little bit of a mystery going into that debate. Well, let's talk about that. Neither one of you can chime in on this because it took some time in terms of even just getting up to this debate. What's the backstory here? Why did it take so long? Well, this has kind of been one of the longest ongoing sagas of this campaign. Uh, Shortly after the primary, I believe, uh, Senator Warnock quickly accepted three debate proposals. Uh, Herschel Walker throughout the campaign has kind of vaguely said that he was ready to to debate, but never really followed through on accepting any of those same three debates that Warnock had. Eventually, you know, this question was raised so many times, are you going to debate? Are you going to debate? that Walker proposed and accepted uh, a different debate from those original three, this next star debate that we are at now here in Savannah. And Warnock, of course, wanting to have one debate rather than no debates, accepted that other debate. And that is how we have landed the WABE politics team here on a Friday afternoon in Savannah. All right. And listen, we, we know what's been happening, especially with Herschel Walker of late, the, the last couple of weeks here. Any idea from his camp if he is ready to to ta- do we even know that could be a question if you have to think, well, perhaps Warnock camp is saying, look, you have to start with that question. Or what are you all hearing in terms of what might be that first heated exchange? Might it be about Herschel Walker and the abortion allegations or something else? Let me tell you, the both the debate organizers, next our media, and these two camps have been very tight-lipped, much more than normal. You know, usually we get a crumb here, a crumb. There I actually know some of the uh, reporters at Nexstar, and they've been, you know, basically told, I gotta stay quiet, man, sorry, I, I can't tell you. Uh, from everything I've heard, you know, it, you know, there's not going to be direct candidate to, there's not gonna be a point where they say, uh, Mr. Walker asks a question to Senator Warnock. My understanding is that's not 
in the debate really? format. But of course, but that's, that, all, that's what that's I'm hearing. That's very interesting, Raul and Sam, because yeah. you and I, all of us, we've done debates for many years. Uh, Raul, mm-hmm. I think you're older than me, so you're the OG. Uh, but <laughs> we usually the panelists or even the moderator, you get to you get to say, hey, candidate A, you get to ask candidate B a question, and that's mm-hmm. not going to happen. That's and that and again, I heard that a couple of weeks ago. Obviously, things could have changed, um, but then there's always the possibility of a candidate just perking up on their own and saying something. You know, this has happened to me in debates where I ask a question to a candidate and the candidate says, thank you for your question, but I'm actually going to answer another question. (laughs) And that's how the pivot. (laughs) And and so to me, and then you've got a moderator put in the position of, okay, I've got to let the other candidate respond. When it comes to, you know, the allegations brought up in the ads that you just played, Mm -hmm. I think some way, somehow it's going to come up in the debate tonight. That's definitely something I think that we're going to be watching for. Uh, who's honking there? <laughs> um. We were wondering what ambi we would deliver to you in this two-way. We've had ringing bells, we've had trolleys going by, the clomp of horses, and instead you get a horn. Yeah. Let me Someone add, may be appropriate. <laughs> yes. Let me ask you all this, because Herschel Walker, oh, you know, he had sort of made this claim that he, and this is his words, not mine. He said, you know, I may not be the smartest guy, I'm not a smart guy, I'm just going to do my best, as if he was trying to one could assume maybe he was trying to set up in case the debate doesn't fare well for him i mean what's your take on that it it completely feels like sports you know obviously he's a he's a football legend it absolutely felt like you know kirby smart you know talking down you know as they go play kent state you know it it's it absolutely feels like you know um a a lowering expectations And, and i know sam Yeah, but, you know, I talked recently with Ed Lee, who's the director of debate at Emory University, and he said there's a flip side to this strategy, basically, which is that it's kind of like, to use another sports analogy, forfeiting the game before you've even played it. Mm -hmm. And you're kind of, you know, admitting to the fact that, hey, I'm not on this level, that I can be an effective voice for Georgians in Washington. So I think it is really possible that that strategy could go either way. Are we seeing any notables down there in early on in support of either candidate what are you all seeing in terms of or even just it supporters period so i saw a candidate for governor stacy abrams was here yesterday i don't know if she's here today mm-hmm. um you know sam mentioned we were here for a rally earlier van johnson is, is a rising figure he's the mayor of savannah mm-hmm. um right now uh, Congressman Georgia Congressman Buddy Carter, who represents this area, along with Rick Scott, is here. Um, Rick Scott is the senator from uh, from the mm-hmm. state of Florida. He also leads uh, the National Republican uh, Senatorial Committee. And you know, Sam Sam actually saw Rick Scott. I know we're not at that event now, but Sam was at his event just a couple of days ago with Herschel Walker. Yeah, and I think his presence here in Georgia underscores a couple of things. One, the importance of this Senate race, not just for Georgia, but for Republicans' big picture strategy in their quest to retake control of the Senate chamber. Georgia is one of their top Senate prospect pickups in the country. And two, it shows that these national Republican Party figures are standing behind Herschel Walker, despite all of the controversy that has unfolded over the last couple of weeks. Um, You know, on the trail, Rick Scott said just a couple days ago, Georgians are going to vote on what is best for them, for their pocketbook, for the policies that they care about, and they're going to put whatever this other baggage might be aside. I think it is an open question whether that remains true or not. Let's talk about polls for a moment. I had a conversation with someone who's a former elected official who said to me, you know, Rose, polls come out every day. And so I don't pay attention to polls. I pay attention to what happens on the, you know, when the when the polls close. But these polls have been out. They've been coming out, it seems like, every other couple of weeks here. Uh, are the campaigns talking about their strategy based on some of these polling projections? Look, it's very clear. Um you know, with with Herschel Walker, at least I keep pointing this out. I know people keep looking at the numbers, but to me, what's most interesting is Governor Kemp gets this percentage of Republican voters, like 90, 94 percent. And then Herschel Walker gets 80 to 85 percent. Herschel Walker is losing this percentage of Republican and conservative voters. It is very clear that the message is not as much. I need you to vote for Herschel. I need you to vote 
for conservative issues, mm -hmm. that you're voting for Herschel Walker to vote Republican in the U.S. Senate. That is absolutely what we're seeing here, and Sam is seeing too. And, you know, we talk about polls being just a snapshot in time, and maybe we shouldn't read too much into them. But as Raul is mentioning, there are some patterns that mm -hmm. we are seeing. Whether or not the actual numbers are the true results we will see on Election Day, I don't know. We shouldn't say that we know. But some of these patterns that Raul just talked about, we are seeing when we talk to voters off the campaign trail in, you know, communities, especially around Atlanta. I've met plenty of voters in places like Alpharetta who are maybe more independent minded and are voting for Kemp for governor and Warnock for Senate, that split ticket dynamic that we see reflected in some of the polls. So there is a little bit of extra information that we can glean that reflects those polls when we are testing them out in the wild talking to voters. Well, finally, uh, guys, as we begin to wrap up, will voters be potentially swayed based on the performance of the candidates tonight. Oh, I, I stumped you. <laughs> Maybe. It's going to be a small percentage of, yeah. look, we've got to, you know, if you're, you're, you're the handful of undecided voters, you know, it's possible because you don't know, you know, there, there are going to be some undecided voters who may be swayed by whatever they see tonight. There may be some undecided voters swayed by whatever social media or commercials or ads come out of this debate, you know, or if there's a, a viral moment. Um, you know, I, I've got to be honest, I've, I've only found a small handful of undecided voters. I know Sam has been talking to a lot more. You, Sam keeps finding these undecided <laughs> voters, um, you know, in the northern suburbs of Atlanta. Yeah. And Rose, you know, I think it is a fair question you're asking whether mm -hmm. debates like this matter. I think it's an open question whether they really move the needle or they are just fun for people like us who want to grab the popcorn and watch a good debate. However, you know, I mentioned Ed Lee, the director of debate at mm -hmm. Emory. He made this really interesting kind of existential point to me, which is that in this moment where there is so much talk about stolen elections and the, you know, not peaceful transfer of power, doing these rituals of democracy like a debate matter and kind of set the stage for this civil, civic discourse that we hope carries from now past Election Day, especially in this moment when things get really tense around really close elections. Well, this is important, what we've been talking about, but I got to end by asking you, where are you going to eat? You got to have at least one good meal there, mm -hmm. fellas. I have some suggestions, you know, but, you know, have you scoped always, that out? I'm always open to suggestions, but I got to give Sam credit. He picked an amazing dinner place last night called The Public. And then he picked this great bagel place this morning that served basically a banh mi pork sandwich on my bagel. All I right. mean, like. You know, Sam has been on point with the food. And Rose, besides food, I got to say, I did a ghost tour last night here in Savannah. <laughs> a ghost tour? Apparently, Savannah is one of the most haunted cities that in America. Is true. Yes. I am also convinced that the ho the house that we are staying in, that our editor <laughs> Susanna picked out, might also be haunted. I don't know if I slept a wink last night. I'm going to suggest you check out Two Chefs Gullah Geechee Soul Food. Okay. That's just from me. So, you know, you'll have time. Absolutely. All right. Sam Greenglass with the haunted house. <laughs> <laughs> Rahul Bali apparently slept fine. Slept okay. Our WAB. Yeah, I don't know. Sam <laughs> Sam was I, I picture Sam like sitting on these steps in this this big house with like a blanket and you know shivering because he's <laughs> cold and he's scared and Raul is like snoring away or something like that. I um, sounds snore. about right. I do Rose. snore. <laughs> <laughs> Live from Savannah, our WABE politics reporter. Reporters Raul Bali and Sam Greenglass, thank you so much for taking time. I really appreciate it. We'll check back in with you all probably when you come back. Thanks, Rose. Happy debate night. All right. See you, Rose. <laughs> Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cf.com.
greateratlanta.org. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. And Closer Look continues from WABE in Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. Apparently it was a record year for funding to other organizations. Reportedly $55 million. And the organization behind all that support, the Jewish Foundation, part of the Jewish Federation of Atlanta. The recipients varied in size and missions. And now I'm joined by Jory Mendo, Chief Foundation Officer at the Atlanta Jewish Foundation. He's going to tell us all about what what happened. Y'all had all this money, Jory. It was amazing. So thank you for having me. I'm so no. excited to share that. And Let, Let's back up a little bit. Yeah. It, that $55 million, I want to make sure, you know, because sometimes with journalists we mess up. It was not a typo. It was not a typo. 55 million dollars 55 million dollars before that our record year was 39 million dollars and that is direct impact out as you said to nonprofit here just in the Atlanta all of Georgia just the Atlanta region here so Atlanta region there is some dollars going nationally and mm-hmm. some of that is going overseas but actually 70% of that stayed local in Georgia and about 20% of that went to non-Jewish causes mm-hmm. and 80% of that went to Jewish causes how typically when you are in your funding cycle, is that breakdown that 80-20, is that usually the split in terms of Jewish organizations and non-Jewish organizations? Is that typically the split? So when I looked at the data for the past five years, we've been trending a little bit more towards non-Jewish. Mm-hmm. And I think there's a couple reasons for that. We're skewing a little bit younger with some of our donors. And mm-hmm. so we're trying to meet them where they are, provide educational opportunities so that they can see what is what is out there for them to invest. In. And part of that is Jewish and non-Jewish and bringing the right issues to the table for them to discuss. I'm glad you brought that up because here's my question. I was wondering if you were getting feedback or saw that you were getting more requests for applications or requests for funding from non-Jewish organizations. And also the last two and a half years, as you know, the climate of our nations as it relates not only to the pandemic, but social and racial justice causes of that. And so I'm wondering if that's all a part of that. That's what I was going to say. We've been getting a lot of calls from donors, potential donors. You can't go around this city and not notice affordable housing, right? Mm-hmm. Now we have the refugee crisis. We have all of these issues continually hitting us. And people are turning to us and saying, maybe I didn't give to these kind of causes before, mm-hmm. but help me get educated, right? Help me understand the need and then help me understand all the places that I can meet that need. So it's also critical that we build that relationship with the nonprofit profits in the community and we've put a lot of focus around that as well. What's an average number of applications or you do RFPs when you put that out there? What's the average number that you all get for folks looking for some support? So the way the Atlanta Jewish Foundation works actually is we have many different kinds of donors, but a bulk of our money is with donor advised funds. Mm -hmm. And so the the donor, um, we work with them actually directly or their professional wealth advisor, and we find out what are they interested in. So you all look for the organization. We build a philanthropic plan. So this is not applicant based. It's not applicant based. How do you know where to look? Who's helping you do that? My team is amazing um, at the Atlanta Jewish Foundation. We also work with a huge community of nonprofits that we've been building relationships with for over 40 years since the Atlanta Jewish Foundation existed. And so that's what we're doing. And we're putting together, for example, a community conversation that we just had was about refugees. Mm -hmm. So we are going out there and we are looking at the organizations and we're bringing them in and we're inviting fund holders to have that conversation with the organizations doing that important work. I want to back up for a moment for folks yeah. not familiar with your organization. You all been around for a while. That's and right. How are you all funded? Are you funded from other foundations or? So we are part of, as you, as you mentioned, we're part of the Jewish Federation of Greater Atlanta, which mm-hmm. has existed for over 100 years. Mm-hmm. And then we as the Atlanta Jewish Foundation, we get our funding based on the fees that come in off the donor advised funds and off of the different funds that exist um, in our community. So we're I want to also back up because I'm wondering during the pandemic, especially 2020 and 2021, did you have a shift where you did want to focus mostly on those 
organizations or missions where perhaps you were focusing on helping people get through the pandemic, whether it was health related or, or something else? I, I'm just curious. Yeah, I have I have a we've been doing work now for two and a half years in mental health particularly. And that has been driven by what funders were interested in and us seeing that need and figuring out how do we educate them. So we funded some research that built upon all the other great work that is being done in that space. And now what we're looking to do is we're finding funding so that we can provide more access to people for mental health because we know that in Georgia that is one Mm -hmm. of the biggest challenges. And we needed to get people educated and comfortable with what even is going on in mental health and well-being so they could come on that journey and that we could provide more more services to Jewish and non-Jewish individuals. And a big partner in that work has been Jewish Family and Career Mm -hmm. Services, which is a large mental health provider in the community. And we've partnered with the Mental Health Funder Collaborative that's part of Greater Georgia. So a lot of people coming together just to address the overall Mm -hmm. shortage of mental health services, and particularly as they're hitting teens and parents and families. I want to get your thoughts on something, because I had a conversation, uh, and I've had this conversation before, with some people who said, you know what, Rose, Atlanta is full of so many nonprofits, so many organizations, so many foundations. Philanthropy here, this is what someone told me, and I'm going to quote them, philanthropy here could be a lot better. Because, look, look, I just recently learned there are 90,000 nonprofits in Georgia. Each year, there's... State gets about 3,000 new applications every year. When it comes to philanthropy, do you think that often one of the challenges is we know about education, we know about housing, we know about mental health, but perhaps sometimes we miss issues because you have all these organizations that are focusing maybe on the same issue, but there's another issue which may not be the headlines, but is so critical. And in those small organizations, I know because they tell me, they say, well, what about us? Right. You know, because all the the money t- tends to go to the same organization. I'm not asking you to speak for all, you know. No, but I get what you're you're yeah, asking yeah. about. How can we build build bridges? Yeah. I think as well, right across organizations, so that we are showing the full landscape. Right, we're not taking just one piece of mental health from the organizations you know about, but we're saying this impacts all organizations mm-hmm. from healthcare to the nonprofits who are providing dental services to those in need. All of that actually has a mental health component. And so I agree, what we're trying to do is we're trying to say, let's bring all those people in a room. Mm-hmm. Let's get past the headlines. Don't you think sometimes we've gotten to be a headline society, right? Where well, I'm a journalist, so I write you, headlines, but, but I get you what get you're it. saying. You yeah. get it, right? Yeah. For people, how do we take that deeper to show them that even if we bring you together for a few hours, we can definitely not address right that full picture, but we can take you that next level that, that you were gonna, not going to be able to get to before. And that's where doesn't matter what denomination those charities are, right? Mm-hmm. They all matter and they all have a role to play. And it's our job to help people see that whole picture and be educated philanthropists, honestly. With this 55 million, this record number, and I'm just still blown away by the number, Thank 55 you. million uh, <laughs> How many organizations were you all able to fund? So that went to over 1,300 different organizations. So that's a pretty large Mm -hmm. number of organizations. And, you know, the dollar amounts for some of them range from a couple hundred dollars um, to hundreds of thousands of dollars. And so that's where it gets, you know, interesting. And for us, too, it's interesting when you look at the ones who are being newly funded and figure out. What's going on there? How mm-hmm. can we further support those organizations who need more help and might, to your point, not be as well known? And that is part of what our job is to do as well. And I don't want to speak for the organization that might have got a couple of hundred dollars, but I'm sure they're saying, well, how can we get from that <laughs> to maybe, you know, a bigger amount in the future? What do you all, what is the criteria here? If you could, don't mind sharing. Yeah, they're, the, the, we just want to get to know them. So that's what I do a lot of the time is my phone is ringing and they're saying, we've got a need. And I say, what is that need? What do you need financially? What do you need? You know, what does your normal donor look like? What aren't you getting? And then I know my donors with our team and we're figuring out what's a match. So it is a lot of personalized one-on-one matching when I learn about a new organization or a new need or something of that sort. You all do not try to or I'm asking, you focus on their mission or vision, Vision, you don't try to sway them in a different area. What they do is what they do. Because I've had an organization say, look, Rose, 
often sometimes when we apply for funding or we get funding, the the foundation or whomever wants to come in and maybe change how we do things. And I've had organizations say, look, we know what to do. We need the funding. Maybe you've heard that. We respect that you are a nonprofit, you have a board, you have your own governing guidelines. If you are a 501c3, right, that is what we're looking for. And we run a couple other checks against the IRS to make sure that what you say the funds are going to at so a macro words, level are going there. Yeah. In other words, when you saw the Rose Scott home for wayward cats, you figured that was not legit. I mean, you know, it, it brought up a question, but then Rose Scott is very, you know, you got a great reputation. so Except but, among wayward cats. So, you know, except among wayward cats. So, no, we want, look, the organizations are the expert, right? right. And we respect that. And we just want to, we want to partner with them and we want to help them do what they're doing and do more of it. I have a listener who just emailed me and wants to know, do you all look at a DE&I framework as well? Yeah, that's interesting. I, one of the things that we have been focusing on, so it's been mental health and well-being. Mm -hmm. It's been working with what we'll call that next generation. So people who are fifth degree um, citizens of Atlanta. And then we also have implemented, we call it JEDI. Explain, explain fifth degree for folks that don't understand yeah, that, Yeah, sure. So what's amazing about the fabric of this community, as you know, is that many people have been living here. They're fifth, sixth generation families in Atlanta. Sure. And they've been supporting nonprofits, right? Mm -hmm. So now you've got the children of them. They could be teens. They could be 30-year-olds. They could be 40-year-olds. And they're trying to figure out, what is my philanthropic philosophy? How do I get educated? And so we're working with them. And a lot of them care about diversity, equity, inclusion, how justice, equity, diversity, however you want to frame it these days. So that is a big part of the work that we're committed to. And we're part of a local and national cohort so in I'm, that space. I'm going to give you then the D question. How diverse is this new group of recipients in terms of black and brown run operated organizations? I just had a conversation with Martin Luther King III and his wife and how they are specifically looking to fund, I think, $100 million pledged toward organizations that are black and black and brown led that are working on, you know, equity and, and justice. So how diverse is this pool? I'll say it's very diverse. And one of the biggest recipients last year, that is what their whole entire mission is dedicated towards. They're called Repair the World, and they are dedicated to bringing justice to the community and helping people in the community, working at all kinds of organizations to volunteer, to develop leadership. And, and so it's a diverse group. A and, and it could be more so. You know, I'm going to be honest with you, right? As could everything. And I, we're continuing I, I to work in that way. I appreciate that. I want you yeah. to be honest. And repair, that's a global organization? They are national, national. And we actually, as part of the Jewish Federation of Greater Atlanta, helped them come to Atlanta in 2018. And they have community fellows that are assigned to all kinds of organizations throughout Greater Atlanta. Um, global growers. I mean, you name it, a whole host of them where they're also bringing volunteer opportunities. So it's about more than just the money, but it's getting the community involved in volunteering and, and seeing what's happening on the ground because that's a big part of it. And finally, as we begin to wrap up, Jory, yeah. besides looking at making sure that they have all the right uh, accreditations in terms of being a nonprofit or what have you, uh, you look at their board of directors. I'm big on board of directors because a lot of times I say this, folks that know me, I say no more than I say yes. And whether or not I will do a community event for an organization, I look at the board. I look at their mission. I look at their vision. I go to... Charity, a charity navigator and guide star, and I look at the financials, I look at all that, make sure they're doing what they're doing. Do you all do that as well? Absolutely. I mean, that's that's a huge part of how nonprofits I mean, operate. I, I look at our 990. Why would we not, right? right? I mean, that is how we all have to be held. Might be my last day here, Jory. Oh, man. Oh, man. And the wayward cats. We got a lot going on. But yeah, the Atlanta Jewish Foundation, we do our due diligence. Like, like every community foundation, that's incumbent on us is to make sure that the nonprofits, that we're helping them be the best they can be, and that our philanthropists are giving dollars to reputable places, right? That they can feel good knowing that, bottom line, they're going where it needs to go. Now, although you all do not necessarily, you know, accept applications, but I know they're, because they're tweeting and they're texting me, organizations say, well, if they're looking for us, but they don't know how to find us, how do we give them a little bit of a... Hey, look at us. Find me. Anybody can find me. AtlantaJewishFoundation.org. 
that is the best way to go. You'll have a contact us spot, and that email will go directly to me. When's so the next at, round of funding? AtlantaJewishFoundation.org. It's a great time right now, as you likely know, because now through the end of the year is when a lot of people are looking to be philanthropic, and you know that helps their taxes as well. So you'll see a lot of dollars start to outflow between wow. now and December 31st. So it's a very good time to be in the fundraising business when people are thinking how to have that triple bottom line. Yes, and I have to tell our listeners, I get to tell our listeners, uh, we'll be fundraising next week. Uh, <laughs> let me I ask you, you this then. <laughs> that $55 million, you think you might break that the next cycle? You know, we're doing everything we can. As you know, the economy is a bit wild right now. Just but a tad. Just, just a tad. Yeah. But that also means we take complex assets. So we accept real estate. We accept appreciated stock. So we have we try to make it super easy for people to give us money to do philanthropic good with. I believe, and if I'm wrong, but I don't think I am, some years ago, someone donated a yacht to WABE. You are not no, wrong. I have no idea what we did with the yacht. Uh, Kevin, you've been on the yacht? I don't know. Do we still have the yacht? I, very. We should find out about that. But no, that people can donate art. I mean, yeah. there are all kinds of stories. But, you know, real estate right now, I think, is always going to be one of those assets that really can go far philanthropically for you. And so I encourage people to speak with us, Atlanta Jewish Foundation, and their professional wealth advisors about what assets really make sense for them so they can do more philanthropy. I would love a closer look yacht. I'm joined by Jory Mendel, Chief Foundation Officer of the Atlanta Jewish Foundation. But seriously, thank you all for helping so many organizations that help people. We really appreciate you coming on and, and taking us through how you all do this. Thank you for shedding light on this important topic and for all you do. I appreciate you. Closer Look continues from WABE here in Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. Before we continue, just a word of caution about our next segment and discussion, because it may contain descriptions of violence. Do you have a description at this point you want to put out? Uh, right now, uh, the investigators are still pulling, looking at video and tape, so once they are able... Shortly after we got there, that's when they held like an impromptu news conference. It was the police chief who was talking, and... I asked the question. And then the victims, are they all female? Are they all right? Right now, it appears that all the female, it, it appears that all victims are female. Okay, and raised? It appears that they may be Asian. It really rocked the entire city. Is this an Asian attack? Cherokee County is super far away from the other spot. And that intentionality that person had to have go from here to here freaked people out. I was not sure what it is about because it's so foreign and this never happened. I was very surprised and frightened and then get angered why innocent Asian women were killed. That's from a new documentary, Rising Against Asian Hate, One Day in March. The focus, March 16th, 2021. Eight people were murdered, including six women of Asian descent, at three spas here in the Atlanta region. I've heard this folks call this shooting, these killings, a watershed moment in a year of increasing violence against Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders. We're going to talk more about that. The director is TTU. She joins me now. Thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me, Rose. TT, let's go back for a moment. Can you take our listeners back to, to March 16th of 2021? What you were doing as you... As you heard about these killings, where were you? Describe what was going through your mental state. Yeah. yeah. So March 16th, 2021, you know, I, like so many other 
uh, Americans were, you know, we were still coming out of the pandemic. A lot of us are still quarantined. And, you know, I just want to take us back a little bit before March uh, uh, 16, 2021, um, during the period when, um, you know, the country was first experiencing this pandemic. Uh, very slowly, a lot of us in the Asian American community started seeing these really horrific videos of attacks against uh, members of our community, mm -hmm. um, elderly and women. And at the same time, we were also hearing this rhetoric, this very, uh, uh, you know, um, race baiting rhetoric that was coming from many of the uh, elected officials at the time, you know, including uh, former President Trump. So for most of us in the Asian community, we were seeing this parallel development happening. And so when March 16th happened, a lot of us felt like it was almost inevitable, like mm. it was like, you know, um, of course this happened. You know, you brought that up and that's we have a clip because in this documentary, you are focusing on early political response as it related to COVID-19, the pandemic, the rhetoric, the false narrative, the 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 hatred targeting Asian yes. people. This next clip starts with then President Donald Trump's exchange with a CBS reporter. Why is this a global competition to you if everyday Americans are still losing their lives and we're still seeing more cases every day? Well, they're losing their lives everywhere in the world. And maybe that's a question you should ask China. What, sir, why are you saying that to me specifically? I'm telling you, I'm not saying it specifically to anybody. A person at the White House used the term Kung Flu. My question is, do you Kung think flu. that's wrong, Kung Flu? And do you think using the term Chinese virus that puts Asian Americans at risk, that people no, might target them? Despite his denials, many saw Trump's rhetoric as the latest example of thinly veiled race baiting targeting Asians. Within a year, anti-Asian hate crimes increased 339%, and racialized accusations were echoed in the halls of Congress. The culture where people eat bats and snakes and dogs and things like that, these viruses are transmitted from the animal to the people. And that ending clip was Senator John Corn, Republican of Texas. T.T., you and I know, and so many folks, so many journalists, as we we're all covering this, and, you know, you're told, okay, you know, you remain objective, you remain neutral, whatever, but also trying to also disseminate the information, yes. you know, dispute the misinformation, <laughs> if you want to call it. Yes. You've been working in space for a long time. I'm curious, as you're working on this documentary, what is going through your mind? Because you are of Asian descent as well. And yes, how are you yes. how are you balancing that? Yeah, yeah. Thank you for asking me that question. Um, you know, first of all, we really, um, you know, tried our best to put together an amazing team of Asian American filmmakers. You know, almost every single um, senior creative position um, is of Asian descent and a lot of us are women. So, you know, for the for so for us, this film really hit very, very close to home. Mm -hmm. And it was very, it's been very, very emotional for a lot of us to, um, um, to, you know, have to go through these hours and hours of violence, um, you know, that we're seeing on the video and, and things like that, and hearing the, the, the uh, politicians, the way they talk. Mm -hmm. So, you know, for, for us and a lot of our filmmakers, um, a lot of the filmmakers on our team, you know, we, we, you know, poured our heart and soul into this, into this story, you know. Let's talk about this because you're taking the viewer, I don't want to give too much away, but you're taking the viewer not only just through before these horrific killings, but also everything after afterwards. Did you get everything you felt you needed? And often when I ask a, a filmmaker that, they always say yes. no, but I'm going to let you answer that. Did you get yeah, everything yeah. that you all wanted to convey, in, to, to put in this film? Were you able to do it? Yeah, I mean, I think in a way, um, <clears throat> you know, we knew from the very beginning that we wanted to tell the story of the community, you know, um, hate crime, uh, when hate crime happens, it doesn't just, it's not just an individual thing, it's a it's an attack on a community, that's why hate crime uh, affects a community on a wider level. So, um, you know, in that way, uh, um, yeah, the, the, uh, uh, um, uh, you know, I think I think we all really, really kind of um, 
really struggled with with um, uh, you know so so um, so the community story so we knew going in that we wanted to tell the story of the Asian American community mm-hmm. and and how this shooting really affected the people in the community um, you know I think what was challenging was that um, we were filming this during the Delta surge mm-hmm. so you know a lot of the uh, activities you know was was uh, shut down um, but I think in the in the end I think you know people um, really just wanted to tell their stories I think you know there's uh, not a lot of films out there about the Asian American uh, experience, and I, I think um, when something like this happened, it's, it's. Um, um, I think it's part of the healing process for the community to, 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 to express themselves. And obviously, you all came to the Atlanta region. Who did you speak to? Who are the folks that you? Yeah, featured? we spoke to a variety of um, you know people. We interviewed um, Bobby Peterson, whose mom um, was killed. Um, he um, he is biracial. He's half black um, and half Korean. Um, and I think this experience um, for him, you know, is really about uh, being embraced uh, for the first time by the Asian American community. Um, so he's sort of our main um, character. And then we also spoke to a lot of the community um, activists and and, um, and and a couple of local legislatures. You know, we spoke to uh, Victoria Wynn from um, CPAC. We spoke to Sarah Park um, um, from, you know, the Korean American Association. Mm-hmm. We spoke to people who, um, you know, really, really worked as closely with the family um, as, you know, as they possibly can um, in the aftermath. When you talk about bias in the Asian American and Pacific Islander communities, what have you, what is your hope that people understand what has been transpiring since 2020 up and through these spa killings and even continues? Is there a disconnect you think that people are missing do you feel like perhaps not enough attention in, in folks like me? Maybe the media, maybe we're not bringing much attention to the violence. How do you see this? Yeah, I think, you know, um, a couple of points. I think, you know, uh, the when when um, when hate crime happens to um, marginalized community or communities of color, I think there, there are two things that happen. On the one hand, is there the street violence. Um, that, you know, that is this sort of the, the kind of violence that we've been seeing that happens in the street and that that, you know, that kind of stuff keeps a community insular in your home and afraid and in fear. Mm-hmm. But there's also a different kind of violence that I don't want people to forget. And that's the kind of violence when marginalized communities and communities of color are mm-hmm. denied the right to vote and deny their their um, right to representation. And I think that um, for me, I want people to understand that those two things go hand in hand and that they're not separate from each other. So, um, so yeah, so that is, that is the takeaway that I hope people get from this film. Let me ask you this. Do you all also talk about any legislation that might have come out of from 2020, obviously leading up to the killings and, and afterwards, do you all hit on that as well? Yes. So we, we highlight, um, you know, immediately after, uh, March 16th, you know, one of the most, uh, uh, the COVID-19 hate crime bill was passed Mm -hmm. with, um, I believe only one, uh, they vote from 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 a Republican senator, um, but but is one of the most bipartisan bills. Um, you know that that doesn't really happen all that often anymore in our in our uh, political uh, you know zeitgeist today. But I think you know you know when when it you know specifically with Atlanta, you know the Asian American community in Atlanta, they they in this past year, which is the year that you know we sort of cover, they they not only experienced this mass shooting, they also experienced um, having one of their, uh, uh, you know, state legislatures mm-hmm. uh, have her district uh, get gerrymandered out, uh, mm-hmm. Senator Michelle out. You know, so I think, you know, we wanted to make this this connection of, um, you know, that again, that, that, you know, for this past year, that it wasn't just this, you know, the Asian American community in Georgia did not just face this mass shooting, there was other things that was happening at the time as well. As a filmmaker, and you've been in this space for a long time, do you concern yourself with whether or not what 
you're trying to convey, where it actually resonates? Do you concern yourself with what will people think about after this film? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think, you know, we, we I think about that every day, it keeps me up at night. But I think in the end, I think what I really wanted to do, um, um, you know, we, we really wanted to tell a story of Asian Americans by Asian Americans, you know, um, and I think, you know, there are little moments in there that uh, that we put in there just because it speaks to Asian Americans. Mm -hmm. But I do think that, you know, non-Asians should watch this film because this is not just about Asian American. Mm -hmm. This is one of the, you know, pressing political issues facing our country right now. So everybody should be paying attention. The documentary also includes, we mentioned there'll be clips of, of so much media. How, and you can, and I'm a member of the media, you are too in a sense, but uh, yes. are you all critiquing the media too a little bit? You can say yes. Yes, <laughs> yes. Yes, well, I think, you know, we, we you know, in the media aftermath of um, this the of, of the shooting, you know, um, a lot of the, the, the media narrative revolved around them, you know, the, the victims mm -hmm. being trafficked, uh, being sex workers because of the places that they work. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, you know, that that I think is, you know, this is part of the reason why a lot of the Asian Americans are speaking out because, you know, our community is diverse just because we work in spas does not make us mm -hmm. sex workers or traffic women, you know, and not, you know, of course, not to say that no, we have a responsibility as well, and I, that's why I yes. wanted to get that in, and I appreciate that. And you should always, we tell listeners and viewers to hold us accountable, so it it, it does, yeah, we should do that as well. The documentary is Rising Against Asian Hate one day in March, and it premieres on many PBS stations in the nation Monday. Now, for those of you who are Passport members, it's available on the streaming PBS Passport. Director TTU, thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Rose. Thank you for covering this. And that's it for this edition of Closer Look. Our producers are LaShawn Hudson, Daniel Razel, and Pat St. Clair. Our engineer is Kevin Rinker. A reminder to let us know your thoughts on today's program or any other. Send me an email, rose at wabe.org. And of course, if you missed any of today's program, it is always online, wabe.org slash closer look. And of course, Closer Look weeknights at 7 p.m. as well as in our podcast. So subscribe to Closer Look wherever you like. And it's okay if you don't listen to Closer Look tonight because you're going to watch the debate. We think that's important. Stay tuned to 90.1 WABE Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Local, state, national politics. WABE and NPR have the coverage you need. I'm Jim Burris, host of WABE's All Things Considered. Whether it's on the air at 90.1, streaming online, or connecting through our mobile app, WABE keeps you on top of election 2024 in what's sure to be a pivotal year in politics. And for candidates and ballot information, visit our election hub at wabe.org election 2024.